Well, we are closing the letter of Galatians today, and uh, that some of you may be happy about that, saying, finally, I, I am not that one. I have enjoyed, um, as a pastor, you, you know, the last, uh, this will be our 22nd sermon in Galatians. We have lived in Galatians for the last five and a half months, and uh, as a pastor, I have enjoyed week by week coming back to Galatians and opening up this book and studying it and gleaning these truths. And uh, you just, you fall in love with these books more and more. You think you know it, and then you come back to the Word of God again in a fresh new way, and you're like, that was there? That, how long has that been there? Where have you been? And uh, the, the truths are rich, and Galatians has been a, a good book. They're all good, but uh, just very pertinent to where we are in a culture, where we are individually. You, you, you do fall in love with these letters and you look forward to uh, spending time in them each week and, and I will miss it. We will begin, Lord willing, next uh, Sunday, uh, a series we're calling Context. We're going to look at uh, eight of the most uh, abused, what I'll say are the most abused passages in the Bible. Bible passages that people go to and they just pluck them out of their context and they quote them for whatever they think they need to quote them for. Um, I, we're going to do that specifically for a lot of reasons, but October 2nd, we become an autonomous church. That will be a, a standalone service, and uh, who knows what we'll do after that. But uh, we're going to, we're going to, uh, um, we'll be free. We can do whatever we want to do. No, season. You, if you know me well enough, we're going to do something that's going to be in the Word of God, and it's going to be true to the Word of God. And so, we're going to look uh, next Sunday, for instance, at verses like Matthew 7, where it says, Do not judge or you will be judged. How, how many of you ever heard that verse just thrown around? Yeah. Even if you don't believe in the Word of God, you use that verse. Like, you don't even have to love the Lord to use that verse. I mean, but what is he talking about there? Is he talking about not judging? The problem is in John 7, he says, Judge with righteous judgment. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with you also. Does that have to do with just, you've got to have two or three huddled up for God to be there, or is that in the context of something else? It's in the context of something else. We've, I've heard that verse numerous times. Jeremiah 29, 11. A very popular verse today, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will, will just call upon me, I'll, I'll heal their land. Is that America? Was he talking to America there? Or was he talking to a specific context? We've got to be careful. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Really? Really? Okay. All right. So we'll, we're going to look at those verses and, uh, and a few others. Um, and, and just try to, what I want to do through that series is not only help us understand those verses, but my heart is each week to help us understand how to study the Bible. I want us to help us to understand in this series, not only to correct those passages and deal with them rightly, but to help us understand a model for studying the Bible. Every single one of those verses are in a context. And the context of those verses is in the, like for instance, Matthew 7, is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is in the context of, an, of a letter that Matthew wrote to Jewish individuals about the kingdom of God. You know, and not only that, but Matthew sits in the context of 66 other books or letters. Context is huge, and, and when we go just ripping things out, it's like a letter. It, we, it, I was thinking about this today. 
we'll get into what we're preaching today in a minute, but I was thinking about it today just to help you understand the need for this. We're in, a, we're in an election year. Listen to me. There's going to be a lot of taking what these two individuals, both sides, they're going to take one-off statements, they're going to rip them out of the context, and they're going to put them on TV to promote a totally different agenda and make you think a totally different message than maybe what that individual, Democrat, Republican, both. They're both going to lie and they're both going to do that. And, and the problem is, you wouldn't want that to happen to you. I wouldn't want that to happen to me. And, and certainly God doesn't want that happening to His Word. Just ripping a verse out of its context and robbing a really of what he originally said and what he originally meant to our own good. Listen, we do that, if we're honest, we do that to our own good. We do that to our own justification. We, we don't take verses out of the context that condemn. We leave those alone. We hide those. But ones that justify what we want and what we want to do. If you want, if you want to find a reason to do what you want to do, you could probably find a verse to help you. But that's not the point. And so I want to help us understand some of these common pitfalls, but also understand the Word of God. So that's, that's enough salesmen for the, the next sermon series. It, it should be good. I'm going to uh, pray for me. I'm taking the group to Creation Museum today. We leave today, so I'll be studying um, in a bus with 29 other people. So we'll see how that goes. We'll see how that goes. But... Uh, Galatians, Galatians, we have seen Galatians. Paul is closing the letter. And we have seen throughout Galatians that the gospel is Jesus Christ plus nothing. It is Jesus Christ alone. God has accomplished everything needed for sinful humanity to be saved, for our sin debt to be paid, to be propitiated, to be satisfied, to be forgiven. God has accomplished that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, through the sending of His Son. Whosoever would call upon Jesus Christ shall be saved. Paul made that very clear. Galatians, the way that we enter into Abraham's family, the way that we become a people, the people of God, the way that we enter into God's family is through faith. It's not through performance. It's not through anything. It's through faith in Christ's work. It's through what, faith in what God did in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, three days later to be resurrected and to reign with Him presently. We, we bring nothing to the table that merits, that warrants, or that provides salvation. We bring nothing. The only thing I bring to the table is sin that needs to be forgiven. Even faith, the Bible says, is a gift. It's all Christ. Paul has made that very clear. It's not of our own doing. But we've also seen in Galatians the importance to, to live in a way that is in step with that gospel through which we have been saved. We saw in, in chapter 2 how Peter's hypocrisy, living one way with the Gentiles, living another way with the Gentiles, how that hypocrisy caused division and problems. Eating one thing over here with this group, and then when the Judaizers come in, no, no, he goes over here. It was hypocrisy. It was not living in step with the gospel. Jesus himself said, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, Matthew 15. But what comes out of a man's mouth is what makes him unclean. God, Peter had seen the vision in Acts. Look, he put all those animals in front of him. He said, arise, kill, and eat, Peter. He knew better. 
What Paul is saying here is the gospel will affect our lives in many ways, and we must submit our lives as believers to the gospel in all respects. When, when we do not live in line, in step with the gospel, it causes problems. Rogue believers off here doing their own thing, it causes problems. We're a body. And, and, and Paul, we, we saw in chapter 3 that, that the challenge for all of us was not, not live on autopilot. He says, that which you began been, by the Spirit are you now perfecting in the flesh just to live on autopilot, just to go through the motions. I've been a believer a, a long time. I, I can do church. I can do this. I can just, you just live on autopilot. And he says, no, no, we live by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We don't, we don't live on autopilot. We're, we're spirit-dependent people. And, and, and our boasting, he has said, our boasting is in Christ alone. Our reliance is in Christ alone. And, and that is how, in many ways, Paul closes this letter, reminding us that our boasting is in Christ alone, no matter the cost. That to live in step with the gospel, no matter the cost. And of all the things that Paul could have said to close out Galatians, it's interesting, he mentions two things, and he calls out his opponents. He calls out the enemies, the Judaizers here, and he, and he reveals their two motives. And, and what drove them, if we're not, is the, the, what drove them to live how they lived is the same problem, they're the same tendency that every single person in this room, it's the same battleground Every single believer in this room is going to battle with. And here it is. Avoiding persecution and seeking the approval of men. What Paul will, as he closes his letter one more time, he says, here are the reason the Judaizers live the way they do. They want to avoid persecution. They want to avoid persecution that comes with the cross. And they want to please men. They want to boast in the flesh. And if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at our own lives, and if we look at why we do, why we don't do what we do, why we do all those things, if we're not careful, it can be for that reason rather than over here because our boast is in Christ alone. And that's why you see on your handout, we're still battling these battles on these two fronts today if we're, if we're honest with ourselves. And the main point of what Paul says here in verses 11 through 18 to close this letter is the focus of our entire lives as believers is to be on the cross. It's the cross. Everything about our lives is the cross. And I ask you before we get going, can you think about that? Is the focus, can, if somebody from the outside was looking at your life and they were assessing what the centrality of your life, what the central focus of your life is, what you are all about, would an outsider that comes in and audits your life, so to speak, would they say your life is about the cross? Would they say the central focus of your life is the cross? To, to put it another way, and the question to ask yourself, and the way to really evaluate that is this, and you see it on your handout. What do you treasure more than anything else? Oftentimes, that's where we'll tell where the focus of our life is. What do you treasure 
more than anything else. In the gospel, it, it says a, a believer would be like a man who, who found a treasure in the field. And you know what he did when he found that treasure in the field? He went and sold everything he owned. Why? So he could buy that field. Where's your treasure? He sold everything else, abandoned everything else. Why? Because he found a field that had a treasure in it. He sold everything else to buy that field. Why? Because that's where the treasure was. That's the gospel. That's the Christian life. I, I want us to ask us this, this question and evaluate our lives on these two points today as we look at how Paul closes his letter with honesty, with humility. You know, what is the focus of my life? Bobby Young got my family hooked on this geocaching thing. It's this little app that, um, you know, you, 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 these treasures are all out there. There's treasures everywhere. Y'all just don't know it. And this little thing tells you where there are. You, you, my family will get in a car and we'll go looking for this treasure. It's like a good version of this Pokemon nonsense that's going on. But there's a treasure. Like when you get, if you find it, there's a treasure there. There's stuff in the box. Our kids go crazy when they find it. But, but it's, it's real. Is, is the gospel like that? Is knowing Jesus like that? Do we get as excited for that? Because the reality is wherever your treasure is, Luke 12, 34 says this, our students know it well, for where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. It's a treasure issue. The answer to this question is what do you treasure? It's like a compass, a compass that drives, you log in those coordinates and everything focuses on that location. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I want us to look at this passage with that in mind. Paul disclose, he, 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 he unveils the motives of these false teachers. He, he undresses them one last time. And he challenges us as believers as well. And that's what I want to do. So let's jump in. You see on your handout there the first point. There will always be a tendency and attraction for us to live for the approval of man rather than the glory of cross and the Christ. To live for the approval of man. Look at what Paul says in verses 11 through 13. See with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. See, what Paul is saying there is typically he would dictate a letter to uh, what was called an amanuensis. And, and typically Paul, at the end of his letter, he would take the pen and he would begin writing a closing, kind of signing off in his own, in his own writing. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good, listen, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Look, simply so that they will not be what? Persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. How many times do you see their boasting in the flesh? The emphasis on the flesh, the emphasis on avoiding persecution. Literally, Paul has taken the, taken the pen here from the amanuensis, the individual who was writing down what he said, and, and he's writing this in his, own, in his own hand. Some people say he writes with large letters because many people believe if you go to the, the thorn in Paul's flesh, the, the, that there was a physical ailment that Paul had. Many people believe it had something to do with his eyes. It could be that he was says right with such large letters because of that. It could be that he is what would be what we would say today. He's putting this in all caps and he pressed bold. 
of all the things that you want to catch, don't, don't lose sight of this right here. Just see this. When there's a letter and something's in bold, your eyes go straight to those. He's saying, look here, let, let me expose one more time, all caps, pay close attention. And he exposes his opponents one more time. And again, you see on your handout, the false teachers had two motives. And if we're honest, our flesh will battle with these same two motives. Avoid persecution, glory in the flesh. Alter the gospel in some way. Alter our lives in some way. Alter what we stand for, our convictions, the word of God. Water it down, do whatever in some way to avoid persecution and to glory in the flesh, to be liked, for other men to like us, for other women to like us, to fit in, to not stand out, to not, to not be persecuted, to not pay the cost. Everything, listen, everything we do revolves around these two motives. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Not to man, not to self, to the glory of God. The, these motives played out in the lives of his opponents, and they play out in our lives as well. The Bible is very clear. You cannot serve two masters. You're going to love the one. You're going to hate the other. You can't serve God and man at the same time, he says. You can't make much of ourselves and much of God at the same time. It's like that old seesaw on the playground. When one side goes up, guess what happens to the other side? It goes down. That's why John said in John 3.30, He must increase... I must decrease. To elevate God and God's work is to, is to lower man. You cannot, when, when, when I try to make myself savable and worthy of saving and, and justifiable and all these things, you know what happens to God's work? It decreases. If my debt was minimal, then your payment for my debt was minimal. But if my debt was huge, then your payment for my debt. Conversely, if my sin debt was huge and I couldn't pay it, all praise and glory to God because he paid it. But if I just needed to get a little bump over the edge, well, you know, anybody could do that. That's not the gospel. Paul says, pursue with your whole life making much of the cross. And when you do that, you will not win man's approval. You live for the Lord, sold out at work, in your neighborhood, in your school, whatever. You will not win the popularity contest, most likely. Bottom line, so get it settled. Is it going to be man? And their approval? Or is it going to be God and His glory? And throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, we see that the cross, that the true gospel of Christ was a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block to the flesh. Human wisdom in and of itself will not value a crucified Savior. That's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 25. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. The, the flesh did not value the cross. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about that. Foolishness, power of God. The world, unsaved world in and of itself, the, a crucified Savior, foolishness. By God's grace, when your eyes are opened up to the gospel, you see that, it, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That's the power of God. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. Note, note how many times you see foolishness. The wisdom of the world? The, the, look, you see this in all false religions. They're, they're, they're not crucifying a Savior. Why? Because that don't make sense to man. All the other false religions of the world are what? They're man-centered. They're work your way to God. They're earn your way to God. They're do good. Do. Why? Because that's what my wisdom would say to write. That's wisdom to man, is do good, self-effort, do all that. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. No, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Look what he says. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness, what he means there is the supposed weakness. In the world's eyes, a crucified Savior would be weakness. He says the weakness of God is stronger than men. Listen, in the culture that Paul lived in, the cross was a symbol of shame and torture. We've already seen in Galatians 3, what did Paul say? He says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Paul is banking his entire life. He's calling people to bank their entire life on a man hanging on a tree. And in that culture, foolishness. Foolishness. I mean, imagine living in a day and your message is the total opposite. No, no, the cross isn't foolishness. It's glory. A symbol of shame. The, the, the cross was meant to not only kill somebody, it was meant to humiliate you. It was meant to, as a, as a message to all those who've seen, you mess with Rome, and this is what happens. To humiliate. It, it was reserved for criminals of criminals. But yet Paul says, I glory in the gospel that's about Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. Not shame. Not to, I glory in that. I glory in a Messiah that was hanging on that tree. But that was Paul's gospel. Imagine preaching to, to Jews, the Messiah that you waited for your whole history. You know what you did when he came? You killed him. You crucified him. Paul says, I boast in that message. And it was not a popular message. And guess what? When we share the gospel today, not a popular message. Share the true gospel, the unadulterated gospel of God today be prepared. Variety of responses. Why? Because it doesn't die, jive with our flesh. We see the gospel as foolishness. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the hearts and minds of the unbelieving. Satan is blinding men and women's eyes to the truth, to the reality of the gospel. And it's always been this way. The, the messengers of the gospel have never, have never really been the most well-liked, well-received. But, but listen, Jesus held no punches when he, commissioned his, when he commissioned his apostles. Listen to what he told them. This, this was their marching orders. Matthew 10, verse 16 through 25. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be shrewd as serpents and innocents and do- as innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and will even, you will even be brought before the governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But who, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. He goes on, A disciple is not above his master, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Imagine getting that. Here, here are your marching orders. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. But that's it. And it's no different today. The gospel is just as offensive today as it was then. People hate the fact that they are incapable of doing anything to merit their own salvation. They hate to be called sinners. They hate to be, to, for you to say, the word of God says that what you're doing is a sin. That separates you from a holy God. You know what they're going to say? Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge or less you'll be judged. That's what they're going to say. Who are you to judge me? Listen to me, I'm not judging you. This, this right here is judging you. This right here. God has already called that a sin. I'm just relaying the message. I'm not the judge. I'm just repeating what the judge said. Here's the order. You're guilty. Guilty. But they're going to quote Matthew 7. Don't judge. Don't judge. That's not what that says. There there is only one way. You go to people and say, look, every other religion in the world is false. They can't stand that. There's one way. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not a popular message. Because you've just eliminated Buddha. You've eliminated Allah. You've eliminated Joseph Smith. You've eliminated all the other false religions in the world. You've eliminated them. We have a neighbor who, who, believes, uh, uh, who is Hindu, and he believes that all roads lead to the same ocean. And I've shared the gospel with him multiple times in friendly good conversations. But what I've tried to show him is this. You can have all your other gods minus Jesus, or you can have Jesus minus all your other gods, because Jesus in Fort John 14, 6 has excluded himself in either way. He's either, a, as C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. You can, it's either not Jesus because he's a liar or a lunatic and all these other gods, or it's Jesus and you've got to eliminate all these other gods. It's one, it's, it's, those are your only options. That's not a popular message. It is an offensive message. And, and that is how the gospel is seen. And the true gospel you see on your handout stands in opposition to all the ways that man would devise for salvation to be obtained. Therefore, it's foolishness. It's not how we would have done it. It's not how we would have written it. That's why man came up with all these false religions. Satan, 2 Corinthians, masquerading. It says, in, I think it's 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. False religions. 
man-centered. And again, what was Paul up against? He was up against man-centered, self-glorifying, works-oriented gospels. That's what every other false religion in the world is made up of. Man-centered, self-glorifying, work-oriented gospel. Why? Because that's what man would write if man wrote a gospel. They would not write a gospel that dealt with Jesus dying on a tree, being buried, three days later being resurrected. That's not how we would write the story. And that's offensive. Doesn't jive with our flesh. The reality is this. Get it through our heads, Christians. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive. We will be rejected. We will be hated. We will be mistreated. All for the gospel. Truly following Christ will come with cost. And that's what Paul says. They try to compel you to be circumcised so simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And the challenge for every single one of us is when it comes time for us to answer a difficult question, to stand up and give a defense for the gospel, are we going to worry about pleasing man or are we going to worry about glorifying God? And listen to me, we live in a culture where there's a lot of, lot of landmines out there. There's a lot of questions being asked that if you give the biblical answer, it's not going to go well. But are we here to glorify God? Or are we here to glorify man? Because, the, and again, the man is going to want to boast. Just like there, they don't even, look, they made it out like they seemed about the law. They didn't care about the law. They cared about boasting in your flesh. They wanted to show, as verse 12 says, show good in the flesh. Make a good showing in the flesh. That was, the, that was what they were about. And we've got to get it settled in our hearts. Who are we here to serve? 2 Timothy 3.12 For all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be loved by all mankind. No. Persecuted. Persecuted. That's it. So to listen, our flesh, if we're not careful, we'll try to avoid this. We'll try to walk the middle ground, which, by the way, Jesus himself said, there is no middle ground. You're either for me or you're against me. This supposed middle ground doesn't exist. You're either for him or you're against him. But in our flesh, there's a tendency to mold the gospel, to, to, to water down truths, to try to explain things away in order to fit in, in order to be accepted, in order for others to like us. And, and what Paul is saying is this. When you change the gospel to avoid persecution and to please man, the danger is this. You deceive men and women in thinking they're saved when they're really not saved because they believe the false gospel. That's the danger. To change the gospel, it's like a formula. We, we said at the beginning of Galatians, if I took a 55-gallon drum of pure water here, pure water straight out of Zephyr Hills, you, you would all drink it. But suppose I drop a, a pin size, I mean a tiniest drop of rat poison in that water and stir it around. And I stir it around real good. Will you drink it? You say no. That's how pure the gospel is. We got to leave the gospel alone. You, you, you add anything or take anything away, you've destroyed the purity of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And listen, this isn't just, I, I feel your pain. This is happening every day in Southern Baptist churches. I read about it every single day. Of pastors in humongous Southern Baptist churches who preach a sermon that the Ten Commandments, they really weren't commandments. Just suggestions. 
Okay, that's good. That's nice. I suggest that you love your father and mother. That sounds better than love your father and mother. You know, churches, churches playing secular music and worshiping the secular music to draw a crowd. Churches watering down their convictions on what marriage is and who can be married and, and on gender things and all that, all to please man. You're destroying the gospel. Every single day I read about it. Prominent, we're not talking about, we're not talking about our, some other denomination. We're talking about, not that we're the only ones that got it right, I'm just saying that. I'm talking about Southern Baptist churches, mainstream, mainline, ones that you would recognize if I named them. Every day. Even in my own family, I, I think I told y'all, my cousin who lives in Tallahassee, we, we basically raised him, uh, called me in March and said, Hey, Uncle Chris, will you do my, will you do my wedding? I mean, I'm, I'm, am I Everett's uncle? I'm his cousin. Yeah, cousin. That whole family genealogy thing gets me. Cousin, will you... Well, I'm an only child, so I don't have a whole lot of these things out there. Everybody's an uncle to me or something like that. Um, will you marry me? Will you, will you do my wedding, rather? That'd be a whole other issue if you wanted me to marry him. <laughs> so he said, uh, hey, will you do my wedding? Well, we had been up there, and I knew that he and his wife, Sarah, great lady, they both professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. I knew that they had bought a home together and lived together. We're living together. And he said, Chris, will you do my wedding? And I said, Everett, I love you as a cousin, not as an uncle, as a cousin. But I can't do that for you. I can't do that. I said, you or Sarah move out for the next year until the wedding, and I will be happy to do that ceremony for you. And I, 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 I talked with him on the phone for hours and showed him the stats about couples who lived together prior to marriage, and the world's wisdom says, you know what? That's setting you up for success. No, 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 no. Statistic after statistic after statistic bears out that living with someone prior to marriage, you are twice as likely to get a divorce in the first five years of your marriage than those who don't. See, even that, human wisdom would say, yeah, man, if we made it this far, certainly when we get married, I'm saying, Everett, you put a ring on that person's finger, it changes everything. It changes everything. I said, it's the difference between renting a house and owning the house. It's different. I don't care about what happens. That ain't my house. We're renting it. I don't care. If I'm making that mortgage payment every month, it's different. Not, not, probably not well-received in the family. You know, I, I felt bad. My parents live in Tallahassee. They got to deal with it. I'm in Tampa. I don't ever see them. But the reality is this. Are we going to stand up on the word of God or not? Because, see, it, I told Everett, and not to be rude, but I said, if you're living with her, I know what else is going on. You're not sleeping in separate beds. We got a whole other issue. I, and I said, I, I pastor a congregation. I can't stand in front of them in good faith and marry you and then stand in front of them and preach the gospel every day. I'm not going to do it. It's not because I'm better than you. It's because the word. I'm driving you to the word. I'm not going to stand up here and say, God, bless this union. They didn't do it. I mean, they've been sinning un unrepentantly. I can't ask that. And it's a truth issue. It's a treasure issue. I said, Everett, I love you, but I love the Lord more than I love you. And I want to honor him more than I want to honor you. And all of this boils down to where our treasure is, where our glory is, where our significance and our identity is found. You see that on your handout. Who, who are we here to please? 
Who are we here to please? And so I ask you again, where is your treasure found? Where is your glory found? Where is your boasting? What Paul says here is that we, bet we can only boast in the gospel alone. Boast in the gospel alone. Find, just abandon everything else for that treasure. Otherwise, you're going to battle with the issue of, of, of pleasing man. Boast in the gospel alone. And you see there the app on your handout. Just, I, I, I would, again, the takeaway, ask these questions when you go home. Is there anything in my life that doesn't line up with the word? That, that, I'm, that I know, that I pattern, that I do, and that I'm unrepentant about. We all have sin. None of us are perfect. But is there anything in your life that you're not dealing with? Any habitual sin that you refuse to get along with God and deal with? In anything that you've watered down in your life, or maybe it's a conviction, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a pattern, behavior, whatever. Anything that you've watered down to please man or to avoid persecution. Anything. Please man, avoid persecution. There's going to be a tendency for us to live lives that water down the gospel and water down truth in order to please man and avoid persecution. Secondly, believers are called to boast in the cross alone. Look what Paul says in verse 14 and 15. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. The word boast, it means to glory in, it means to rejoice in, it means something that you're consumed with, it means something that you're obsessed with. The cross was not, Christianity and the cross was not one of the things in Paul's life. It was the thing in Paul's life. It was the central thing about everything that Paul did. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. This is what Paul says. For consider your calling, brethren, that, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He's talking about Christians here. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. By the way, that's you and me, base and despised. The things that are not, so that they may nullify the things that are. So that, here's why God did the God, here, why did God design the gospel this way? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Look at verse 31. So that, again, he says, why? So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The hero of my salvation is who? It's Jesus Christ. The hero of my life, Jesus Christ. We could read chapter 2. He says the same thing. And until we understand the gospel fully, until we understand the cross fully, we won't boast in it. And again, in Paul's day, it was a means of execution. You didn't wear a necklace or a shirt with a cross on it. it. It was not, again, it was not meant to kill, just to kill somebody. It was meant to humiliate somebody. And yet, Paul says, I boast in the cross. Why? Because the cross is the center of Christianity. 
It means everything to us when we understand that it was at the cross where our sin was paid for, where God's wrath was dealt with, where our sin debt was paid for. It's like the song, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, where the burden of my heart was washed away. It was there by faith I received, by, by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The cross. And that, that emblem of torture and shame and, and just humiliation, Paul says, put all your confidence there in what Christ has done. He's saying our entire identity is in Christ alone and the work of Christ. Therefore, we boast in the cross. We are saved solely through the work of Christ. We take no credit. And in, therefore, in doing that, the world becomes dead to us in that sense, meaning this, it has nothing to offer us in regards to our identity or our standing before God. It's dead to us. I don't, I don't look to the world for my identity. I don't look to the world for my standing before God. I look to the cross. The, the world has no claim. He's literally has no claim on us, no power. You see it there on your handout. The gospel destroys the world's power and claim over us. My identity is in Christ. I, I am married to Karen Basham, 62803. No other woman can make a claim on me. I'm hers. She may think about that some days and have a little buyer's remorse, but I'm hers, for better or worse, honey. Richer or poorer. I quote Jeremiah 10, 14 all the time. All men are stupid, void of knowledge. I don't know what to tell you, babe. That's just who I am. I boast in the cross. Our, not only, but our righteousness. Why? Because you see on your hand, our righteousness is found in, the, in Christ alone. It's not found in my efforts. It's not found in the world's, what the world says to me. It's in Christ. When we started the counterculture series before this one, we looked at 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Literally, he's saying, set apart God from everything else. When the only way to not fear man and the way to destroy your fear of man, he says, is to set apart God. The, fear, the, the, the revering Christ squashes there on your handout the fear of man. He says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He quotes Isaiah 8, 12 there. What was going on in Isaiah 8 is God's people were fearing the same thing that those outside of God's people feared. And God is saying, why do you, my people, fear the same things that they fear when you have me and my promises to stand upon? What he's saying is you have no reason. God is our refuge. He's our strength, not man in their approval. You have no reason to fear them. You have me. Psalm 3, that you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. The rest of the psalm says he's our refuge. And what he says is this. Back to the fear of man. We will always be ready to defend God when we worry more, that's the fill-in, about displeasing God than displeasing man. When I care more about what God thinks of me than what people think of me. When, I'm, when, I'm, when my aim is to glory in Christ and to make much of Christ more than this world. He says, only then will you be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 
when you've set apart Christ from everything else, not one of the things, of, he is the thing. And the reason he says you, we don't live for man and we don't live for its approval is because we have God. We have his character and we have his promises on our side. That's what Paul says here. He says, for neither is circumcision nor, nor anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things are gone, new things have come. Whole new, whole new way of living. Whole new person. This is John 3, you've got to be born. That's why he says you've got to be born again. New, new creation. Old is gone. We don't live for self anymore. We live for God. We do the Spirit of God in us. We live based on what Christ has done for us at the cross. And, and we boast. And I thought about how do I illustrate this. I, I, I thought about this, and again, you're talking to a guy who loves sports, but listen to me. When our team wins, we, we, we like to say that we win. We boast. Did, look, the Bucks hopefully will win some games this coming up football season. When they win... We're gonna go, you're going to go crazy. And you're going to walk around, we won, we won, we won. Did you, did you do it? You didn't play. You didn't take a snap. You did nothing. You, you consumed more calories than they, I mean, during the game, and they lost all theirs, and yet we won. You, you boast in the work. Listen, you boast in the work of someone else, right? They worked real hard, and you boast in their work. That's the gospel in a sense. We, we go around telling how everybody how awesome it was and we wear the shirts and paint our faces and spend tons of resources. Imagine if we as Christians did that with regards to the gospel. Imagine if we couldn't wait all week to tell about how, what we learned in church or how great our God was or what he's doing in our life to our employees versus talking and arguing about a game that means nothing. What, what if our social media accounts had more to do with what, how God was blessing and what he was doing in our lives than what, what Florida State did and what the Bucks did and all this other stuff? What do, you think, what do you think, I mean, when the world looks at us, when they audit our lives, what do you think the world says is our treasure? Our teams? Our sports? Or the gospel? That's what Paul is saying. What are you boasting in right now? He says, may it never be that I would boast except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom which the world has been crucified to me and out of the world. He said, this world, it, it, it doesn't offer, everything I need is found in Christ. My identity, everything is Christ. Boast in the cross. Thirdly, thirdly, he says this, it is better and, and I'm summing up Galatians, and I'm summing up Paul's life in general and a theme in this. It is better that we lose our life because we make much of Christ than to waste our life by making much of something else. It is better should we lose our life because we make much of Christ than to waste our life by making much of something else. And here's, here, here's where, I, where I'm going with that. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me for i bear on my own body the brand marks of jesus paul knew firsthand that making much of christ was costly 
He says right there, the, the marks are, are upon me. Mark 8, 34 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Die to self. New creation. And you see on your hand that when we see, what we see here in all of this through Galatians and the whole Bible is that, and I should have put only, that suffering is not only the result of making much of Christ, but rather suffering is the way that we make much of Christ. Not only will we suffer because we make much of Christ, God will use our suffering as a way to make much of Christ. And I, th and, and I see that in Colossians 1, verse 24. Listen to what, he, look at what Paul says. Now, I, listen to this. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Listen, what he's saying there is that Jesus' sufferings are completed in our sufferings because in our sufferings, they see his suffering. We're carrying on what he did in our own bodies. We're carrying on the sufferings of Christ. That's why Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 11, listen, you want to know the marks? Listen, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He, in, in Galatians, he just says, look, I bear the marks. Listen to the marks. In me, if this was me, I'd have listed them again. I'm telling you, if this, I, I'm telling you, my flesh, you'd want to listen again, just so you know. But listen to what he says. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. Listen, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from these, like there's nothing, apart from these such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul says, you want to know what I'm talking about, marks? I got the marks. That's why Paul says in, in Philippians 1.27, he says, he says, verse 29, for the sake of time, he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Experience the same conflict which you saw in me and now bear in me. You, you see it on your handout. We are called to boast in the cross even in the midst of pain and even death. And Paul shows this e even in Philippians 3.10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I think if we were honest, we love that one. But he says also in the fellowship the fellowship, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. There, there's a fellowship in our sufferings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a, in a book entitled The Cost of Discipleship, says this, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing God and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
Either way, you know what Paul says? He goes on to say, either way, I get Christ. Either way, I get fellowship with Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says, I live as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Why? Because Christ was his boast. His treasure was in the gospel. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.10, uh, 4.12 rather, says, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to, degree, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that, you also, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Easy. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, for it is to glorify God in his name. I mean, verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We exist to make much of God no matter the cost. No matter the cost. No matter the cost. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1.20, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Shame for Paul. Listen, shame for Paul was not himself being belittled. Shame for Paul was Christ not being exalted in his life. That's why he says in, in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of salvation, first for the Jew and then to the Greek. Paul was willing to be shamed because of the gospel, because he followed and believed in the gospel, but never once was he ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because that's where his boast was. That's where his treasure was. And well, you see it on your handout. Whatever we value and boast in, determines what we feel shame about. Whatever you boast in, whatever you value, whatever you treasure most, that's what you're going to feel shame about. Listen, let me explain real quick, and I'm going to close. If you love to be made much of, if you love for your name to be made much of, if you love for everybody to talk good about you, guess what you're going to feel when people don't talk good about you? Shame. Why? Because you care more about what people say about you. If you build your life about, around being much of, being made much of, being the center of attention, when you're not the center of attention, guess what you're going to feel? Shame. Anger. Sadness. Why? Because that's where your treasure is. But if you're about, if you're about being, if I'm about being, if I'm about Christ being made much of, then guess what? My shame is going to be oriented when Christ is not made much of. And everything about my life is going to be about Christ being made much of no matter what. John, John Piper said this, and it's on your hand out there. Death is only a threat to the degree that it frustrates your main goals or robs you of your treasure. Think about that. Think about that one. I would encourage you to all read a book, uh, John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. He says in there, Death is only a threat to the degree that it frustrates your main goals. You know what Paul would say in Philippians 1, that death is gain? Because his main goal was to know Christ. And you know what death did? Death got him to his goal. It didn't frustrate his goals. It got him to his goal. 
And you know what he said? Hey, you know what? If I go on living in this life, you know what it means? It means fruitful ministry. Why? Because I'm going to make much of Christ here. So whether I live or whether I die, either way, it's Christ. The, and the way we die and the way we live tells, tells the world what we love. Does death rob us of our true glory? Or does it usher us into our true glory? I'm not saying we don't miss loved ones. We've got plenty of them that we miss, and you do too. Here's what I'm saying, though. If, if we love Christ and if we treasure Christ, you know what death does? Death gives us Christ. Death gives us our treasure. And if we've got loved ones who are already there, you know what death does? Death ushers us into their presence as well. And Christ is made much of, last, or next to last filling, Christ is made much of in our death when we are satisfied with him even in dying. That's Job 13, 15. Job says, though you slay me, I'll trust you. Do, do whatever you want. Just like Daniel leads us in a song, says, have your way, Lord. Have your way with me. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says that, that you know, do not focus on the things that are not on scene, but on the things that are unseen. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not eternal. Christ alone, listen, what Paul is saying is this, Christ alone is the treasure that lasts. Treasure Christ more than anything else. Don't back down. Don't water down. Don't waste your life, spending your life on stuff that doesn't matter. Stand up for the Lord. No matter what it costs, whether men don't like you, whether persecution comes, stand up for the cross. And let's be a people that makes the cross the center of everything.